Welcome to the Women of Fintech podcast series. We are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges and walk the talk for change across the entire industry. Today, we are joined by Mahima Padar, the Group Head of Personal Banking at Equitable Bank, Canada's Challenger Bank. Personal banking comprises of EQ Bank, Canada's leading digital bank, the single family mortgage businesses, the decumulation lines of the business in reverse mortgages and CSV lending, marketing and the distribution of deposit products through the financial planning channel. Mahima runs all of this and she is here today to share her story and some lessons along the way. Mahima, I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited as well. Thank you for having me. So this is a big role. Um, tell us in your words about the role and what it entails. Sure. Um, well, you did a really good job covering the areas that fall into my mandate, but uh, here goes. So I am the group head of personal banking at Equitable Bank. And essentially what that means is that I have the honor of leading any team that runs one of our lending or deposit businesses that ultimately serve a retail banking customer. Equitable Bank has been around for about 50 years and is Canada's ninth largest bank. Uh, we have about $35 billion of assets under management, which makes us a mid-sized bank in Canada, but considerably smaller than the traditional big five banks, which really own like 90% of the market share in Canada. So for Equitable Bank and EQ Bank to really succeed in the Canadian environment, it means that we need to really think about doing things differently and getting away from the status quo. Well, that's incredibly huge, huge, huge mission. And it sounds like you're doing lots of this already. Equitable Bank is on this big mission to drive change into banking, to enrich the lives of Canadians. Tell us more. We are definitely on that mission. And I think it's safe to say we're delivering on that mission. And I love that we have this bigger purpose that is beyond profits and shareholder returns, which are obviously very important. It really is about driving change in Canadian banking to enrich people's lives. And I love that mission because it's so much bigger than us and than our bank or our set of customers. We see our, ourselves as having the responsibility, despite being a fairly small player in the landscape, to drive positive change in the whole industry. For us, that generally is related to the value that our customers are getting. Um, and so one example is that EQ Bank, our digital bank platform, was the first bank in Canada to offer peer-to-peer e-transfers, and no other bank was doing that. So the norm was really each transaction would be a dollar for customers, um, and we had eliminated that dollar fee, and also there was no monthly fee on the bank account that would normally subsidize the peer-to-peer -peer transfers. So you fast forward a year after our launch, and the big banks in Canada followed suit. So now most of them have removed that e-transfer or that peer-to-peer -peer transfer cost um, from day-to-day -day banking. And it has probably saved Canadians tens of millions of dollars, if not more, um, in these transaction fees. And, and it's pretty remarkable to me that a smaller bank like EQ Bank could have made the difference for the whole Canadian industry. How inspiring is that? Like, that is amazing to be able to share that story. And if we kind of put that towards each individual, you know, there's lots of people in business that will say, well, that's probably, that's probably too big for me to try and make that change happen. Well, look at this story. This story shows that no, no business, no one person isn't big enough to drive change. That's really exciting to hear. So tell us a bit more about you and your career journey and, and what kind of got you to where you are today. 
Uh, sure. Well, um, I graduated from business school. Uh, this was an undergrad pre-financial crisis. And for some reason, had my heart set on investment banking. I think if I said it was because of the intellectual challenge, I'd be lying. Um, part of the draw was the money at the time. Part of it was the glamour. And most of it was probably that the people with the strongest profiles that were going to school with me were gunning for investment banking. Most of them were men. Actually, all of them were men. Um, and so I wanted to prove that I could do it too. And so long story short, I started my career at Goldman Sachs Investment Banking uh, in LA. Um, and this was just for a summer internship but fairly eye-opening for me in that I hated every single second of it. I think the first lesson there for me was to be self-aware, to know that I needed a more collaborative and creative working environment to be happy. I think I also learned that no matter how hard I worked, if I wasn't enjoying the environment and the people around me, I, I wouldn't be successful. That was a transition moment for me. I uh, ended up joining management consulting instead at the Boston Consulting Group. And I specialized in financial services and corporate development and like just such a better work environment for me, much more diverse, collaborative. It was more about everyone having their own bar of performance versus being pitted against each other. So I got to work across North America. I spent uh, a year or two in London and really found my groove. I think the lessons I learned there were to lean into genuine curiosity and ask questions relentlessly. I think far too many of us are worried about what perception we're leaving by asking too many questions, but like that's where you really get into the, the meat. Like worst case, you confirm what you already knew, but best case is that you find a new idea, you find a new solution, you find a new problem that needs to be solved. And ultimately, I think you end up learning something that will help you down the road, even if it's not immediate. So I'd say pretty grateful for my time in consulting. And after a decade or so in consulting, I was looking for a high growth, entrepreneurial, um, yet well-funded organization. And Equitable was perfect. I joined as the head of strategy and corporate development. And a big part of the job for me was reporting to our CEO, Andrew Moore. So working with Andrew has been a, yet another important lesson around the value of sponsorship in your career. And I think especially, I think it's important for everyone, but especially for women, this idea of sponsorship versus mentorship, like both are important. And I think uh, a lot of us have been leaning into mentorship, but you need to really look for that sponsorship element as well. And so Andrew, as CEO, invested in me, gave me the opportunity to pursue my passion project and really helped me open growth doors that I never would have thought of for myself and like lined me up for promotions and bigger roles that have been like fundamental to my career and really making sure that I'm always in a position that I can add impact because I've realized again, like that is a big internal motivator for me. I think that's incredibly interesting. And I love that you brought up the difference between mentoring and sponsorship, because I think that mentoring is so important and it's a huge, huge positive of our entire industry. Like if you think about FinTech financial services, and you think then about other industries, actually mentorship is a huge thing that we do that's quite unique. But sponsorship to me is sort of taking that one bit further because mentoring implies that we are improving the women that need to be improved or that people need to get better. Whereas sponsorship is about turning that into opportunity 
because often it's about changing the environment and the perception of the women rather than making them better. Now, I completely agree with what you said about always asking questions because there is no end goal on getting better. Like I, I've got a hashtag that I use, which is hashtag get better every day because there is no, there is no end point here. But you really got me thinking about you know, the, the, the benefits of both, but also the absolute necessity of sponsorship. And I think it's something that anyone listening to this needs to think, how can I sponsor those around me better? Uh, what that, can I do? I think that's exactly it. So sponsorship is about actually taking bold action to create opportunities for women or other less represented individuals versus mentorship, which is obviously important. It's about giving advice and giving people the knowledge to try and create better opportunities for them, but it is not really as helpful as sponsorship. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so pleased that you've brought that up because I think, you know, again, this podcast is about igniting drivers and actions and people to go and do things. And I think just just highlighting the difference between the two will will really incite some change from those that are listening. Now, your bank itself has made some public commitments to investing into its own people, as well as embedding strong diversity and inclusion values into your workplace culture. I wondered if you could talk us through the importance of this approach. I mean, I think for us, it's a competitive advantage. Like it sets us apart from other banks in Canada, other challenger players. Um, Obviously, I think diversity and inclusion is on everyone's agenda, but there's a different reality when you're living it and you're taking again that bold action especially around inclusion i think there's ample studies that show the business value of fostering inclusion and diversity in fact i think the link between diversity on leadership teams and the likelihood of financial outperformance has been proven time and time again and actually that financial outperformance is increasing over time i also think that recruiting diverse talent is not enough It's the inclusion factors of equity, openness, and belonging that allow our talent to stay and thrive. And I I think we need, as a society, more focus on that inclusion piece, because if it's not there, you're going to put all this effort into recruiting that diverse talent, but they won't be set up for success. And so then you'll have this churn um, reality. They won't see the growth that they deserve to see, and you won't get the business outcomes you're ultimately looking for. And again, some really important things that you're bringing up there. Um, It reminds me of what you said earlier about not pitting people against one another, like recognizing different strengths, different abilities, and collaboration is about celebrating those differences rather than making it a competition to to crush one side so the other side wins, which is is how it's felt um, in the past. And I think it's really, really interesting as you're bringing in the reality of of what we mean when we talk about a diverse workforce or an inclusive workforce. It's about not just, you know, this is me coming from a recruiter. It's not just about me helping people find what they would perceive as diverse talent. It's about ensuring that that environment is welcoming. And as you say, people are set up for success. You know, this is something I know that you're really passionate about. You know, it's about people. It's about people's strategy. Tell us a bit more about that. People are your biggest asset. I think it's played out for me personally so many times in that if I can build a strong, diverse team around me that feels supported and sponsored, the outcomes that we can achieve together are so much stronger than, um, you know, what I could have achieved by myself or achieved through a homogenous kind of 
team. And I, I think that, again, the paybacks of inclusion and retention are so obvious to me. Again, like I'll give you another example is we had this uh, high performing visible minority female that was part of the team um, that I had actually recruited five years ago or so. And she ended up getting poached from another organization, a big digital organization, like very sexy brand, a lot more money, compelling team to work with. But ultimately, it was that personal connection that we had built over time, that she could come and have that honest conversation with me. We talked through the pros and cons. And it was the path that had been opened up for her at Equitable in terms of you know, how do we cultivate opportunities according to her strengths and interests? It was the sponsorship that she'd been given to be able to move around the org and try different things that ultimately got her to stay at the company where realistically, like we were, our offer was financially less compelling than the other um, company that was in front of her. But that inclusion factors of openness and belonging were so compelling that we were able to retain this extremely valuable person on the team a really really good case study for people to be listening to because I think at the moment you know in in the world of um, hiring and people moving across into different com- companies you know, everyone's talking about how buoyant the market is right now you know that everybody's hiring you know me as a recruiter I've been in the industry now 18 years I've never seen so many vacancies in all that time it's a, a really really busy time um, and, and I really, really am pleased that you've spoken about this example because so many times I say to people, it's not about trying to persuade someone to stay. It's about really supporting them to make the right decision. The right decision should be to stay. You know, it's about you making sure that you were the right decision. And I think the story that you've just shared there is a real example of the relationship that you cultivated, the collaboration that you have, the setting people up for success. The proof was in the pudding with that. So it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant one to hear. But also what really, really stood out was, um, you know, you, you yourself, you've put time into that. It, you know, that this isn't something that can be rushed. People can't be rushed. And people, relationships, they, they get forged over time and with care. Um, and I think that's a really important part to your story as well. I think like when you ask, what is it about the people strategy? To me, it's that, it's like, how do you foster those individual connections How do you spend the time listening to what that person needs and what they're looking for and cater your approach accordingly? And this is somebody who's like, doesn't report to me is actually a few layers into the organization, but still for them to feel like they have that sponsorship, um, I think is so valuable. And it's actually one of the parts of the job that I enjoy the most, like those personal real connections where I feel like in help, you know, facilitate kind of difficult decisions, but hopefully allow these women or um, other, again, underrepresented individuals to find their path. Mm. And, and be the, the sponsor that you spoke of. You know, you said we need more sponsors to really drive sponsorship and you are, you are doing that. So you are really walking the talk, as I like to say. So my final question, we've covered quite a bit of it, but I wonder if there's anything else that you'd add. My final question is about your call to action that you, that you would want people across the fintech industry to do more of with regards to workplace inclusion. So I think there's two things. On the inclusion side, I think there needs to be leadership capability and accountability for inclusion across our business leaders and middle management. 
So I think it needs to extend well beyond the executive teams to those like day-to-day managers that really drive the experience for the majority of the company. So again, just like business goals, there needs to be clear KPIs that are part of job descriptions that are assessed in performance reviews that are supported with real-time data and measurement so that we're making active progress um, in the inclusion front. And of course, it needs to be embodied by senior levels of management. I think the other piece is more on the getting the right talent through the door. When you are recruiting for a position, I think like it's important to look beyond your immediate network because it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you kind of just look at the obvious circle around you, it's usually people that have already been in these types of roles. And so they're going to always look the same. I think like when you're doing that recruiting piece, it's so important to open up the the lens to see, you know, what other profiles would make sense? What other roles are there that are not necessarily traditional, but could be a really good fit? And I think like there needs to be a forced effort um, to take that extra step to get the profiles in the door. And then obviously you, you choose the person who's best for the role. But I do think that our bias is to look um, at our immediate circles, which again, are already biased by the, the years of self-selection, if you will, um, that have happened before where we are today. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, there has to be lots of, lots of work to sort of try and tip tip the balance of the scales and and that you know it's it's like you know when you start rolling a ball you know there's a lot of effort that needs to go into trying to tip those scales so I couldn't agree more and I think in this entire podcast you've shared some fantastic insights to to the work that you do to the business that you're in um to with your with your background with your experience but more importantly the the actions that um that you're doing at Equitable Bank what you've done for people within there and the advice that you've given has been brilliant because we can pick that up and we can start using that in other businesses as well. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Women of Fintech podcast series. I've truly loved it. And thank you for joining me. Thank you so much again for the opportunity. 